working within these barriers forces you to be creative. Uh, it forces you to innovate. It forces you to build relationships that you wouldn't build normally. And I think that's the best part. That's the fun part. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, our guest is our longtime friend and generally awesome human being, Fire Chief Michael Baker. So Michael is Director of Emergency Medical Services for the Tulsa Fire Department. So I would have done this interview, but you probably would have been annoyed by my fanboy giddiness about talking to Michael Baker, who I love. Did I mention that? And so we asked Jessica Kelly, who serves as the association's Homeless Outreach and Rapid Response Clinical Coordinator, to interview Michael because she appreciates Michael almost as much as I do. Actually, Jessica and Michael work closely together back when Jessica served as the association's embedded social worker with the Tulsa Fire Department. So without further ado, let's get this thing started. The mental health download starts now. I'm so happy to be hosting the mental health download for the first time. And I couldn't think of a better person to interview than you. I'm glad you're interviewing me. I was super excited. It is a super exciting time. Okay. First of all, can you give us a brief overview of why you wanted to join the Tulsa Fire Department's Emergency Medical Services or EMS team? Uh, sure. Um, you know, for me, I, let's just be clear. I just Since I was a kid, I wanted to be a firefighter. A lot of folks go through that kind of phase. And um, parts of that was being a paramedic. I thought that being a fire paramedic was going to be the coolest job ever. And so um, after a stint in the military and trying to find my way after high school and um, dabbling in television a little bit and some other stuff that I did, I just, I finally was successful in getting on the fire department. But um, I had been a paramedic for about five years prior to that. And um, that's been a long time ago. Um, my my assuming the role within the fire department and the Tulsa Fire Department's emergency medical services branch uh, was born as, you know, kind of a staff change. Um, it wasn't the best of the times for the department, but um, I am starting my 12th year. And so, or let's go wait, 11th year, sorry, 11th year in the fire department as the director of EMS. So I'll have 25 years on the fire department in June. Dang. I know. And I know time. I'm old. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I got on when I was 14. No. Um, uh, so, it, yeah, 25th anniversary coming up. And uh, just, you know, I have a I really have the great job. Chief Ray Driscoll allows me a lot of leeway to do work in the community, uh, participate in a lot of um, programs and processes improvement that impact the fire department and public safety in Tulsa. And I have a lot of great partners like the Mental Health Association. Association, and it's just, um, it's really been a, it's kind of blossomed into a fun job. Nice. So are you going to stay on after 25 years? Yeah. You know, I don't, I have, I love the fire service. I am not, um, what would I do if I left? You know, that's the other question is what would you do? And so, um, You'd be a social worker. You could go off and do. Yeah, but I still have to eat. So that clearly is oh, not okay. going to happen. So, you know, it, it's a, I love the fire service and I, I love being in public safety and serving the citizens and, and, uh, or those folks that come through our city. And so I'm not looking to go anywhere anytime soon. So, yeah, I'll be here. Well, I'm super glad you're sticking around. So, on average, how much does your team spend on tending to people experiencing mental illness or homelessness? 
you know, we have certain locations in the city of Tulsa that generate a high volume of uh, homeless related calls. And, um, you know, we've been tracking that quite extensively um, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, there's really kind of some internal reasons is that the demand on fire personnel and all the other responders that actually it, it begins to take the toll on them as a provider. Um, not only in their looking at I mean, we're, we're problem solvers just by nature. Firefighters want to basically put water on a fire and watch it go out and they solve a problem, right? So, dealing with homelessness is not that uh, binary, right? Or it's not that black and white. And so, uh, the point is, is that it, when we start entering the social work side of fire service, it begins to be a challenge and people get frustrated and they're not, their satisfaction in their work is, is less. And they're trying to work through these problems that just don't seem to go away. And, and you look at it and what the totals are, you know, I was looking at January for this, you know, because I, I kind of knew you were going to ask me that question. And I was looking at our January numbers and dealing just with the homeless population in shelters. And at one particular shelter, we had 70 responses in the month of January just to that shelter. And if you look at what we calculate, you know, it, our calls aren't very long there. So, we're in the process now of looking at, well, if we're not spending very much time there, what's the outcome of that call? And why did we even go at all? And are we really part of the solution there? Um, and it, it begins to get expensive. And um, especially as you increase that frequency, because there's vehicle accidents that happen, there's injuries that happen, um, all in right. our responses. So, you know, the the challenge is, is that, is it, is it a good cost investment? Are we missing calls? And I think that's the most important part is what's the, you know, if we have a, a location that we're dealing with a challenging population and we're trying to uh, really invest a lot of time to put them on the path of success, whether they're living with mental illness or they're experiencing homelessness, um, you know, are we doing the right thing for them? But what happens when we have another emergency and we're not able to respond effectively because we're working with a population that needs some extra help. It, it's really a conundrum or problem that we face all the time. And so, it does get pricey. Um, you know, you look on um, $2,500 in time, probably for the month of January for just one location. And that doesn't seem like very much, but, you know, those are nine, 10 minute calls. Um, so, when you're looking at nine minutes worth of time investment is, you know, what we're having to look at is that really worth our time to go? And is there another solution to that problem? So, as we work with sh shelters and outreach teams and we really do a deep dive into how we're handling these calls, I'm hoping that folks understand really kind of this, um, you know, how do we bridge doing the best for the person who's calling and also bridge for the public safety role and mission that we have and the good use of taxpayer money. So, it, it puts us in a challenge, uh, but we, uh, we we go on those, those the folks that that work at the stations that are the most impacted by homelessness are, um, uh, they're actually experts in that field. They know how to navigate. Um, they know those folks by name. They're concerned about them. Um, they want to find a solution for them. And so, that's not, it's really hard to explain that process. Um, and then mental illness in itself, um, you know, we see it in all aspects. I, I think it's a complicating factor. Well, we know uh, it's a complicating factor in the healthcare of many Tulsans. Um, it's, it, we see folks across the city that are experiencing cardiac-related issues 
or um, you know they're having uh, long-term problems with a substance that they they may use and the, you know are they self-medicating is that is mental illness a component of that I, I think simply even depression um, has a role in people's health and wellness in the community across the board and I think that drives our healthcare role as well as a first response agency um, we're we're going to be there on the most critical calls and folks that you know are living with uh, chronic um, medical conditions and also living with a mental illness are just not getting well um, to the rates that um, they're just, it impacts their ability to get well. And so once again, that drives emergency medical calls and it becomes a crisis at that point. And it's, um, we really want to try to work proactively to prevent those issues um, versus only having an emergency as an only option. So out in the community, would you say you're seeing more co-occurring issues like medical and mental health or medical and substance use or like all of them combined? I believe it's all of them combined. Um, and I, you know, I will admit that I think I probably dismissed the, com the mental health component for years of my career and not laying it into the overall wellness of a human and a person's, you know, how they live their life and what, how that impacts. There is a, just an, you know, a, um, they're inexplicably linked to each other and they must be uh, considered equally and how that, you know, someone experiencing a physical illness is also possibly experiencing mental illness and and you can't you can't try to treat one without treating the other and right. so I know you're a huge collaborator in the community with other agencies. What are some of the greatest challenges that you've seen in the community when it comes to collaboration? Well, again, a great question. Um, I try to be a collaborator. I will tell you that when I first kind of really started trying to work on these issues and challenges that we're having in the public safety and the fire department, especially, um, not everybody's a collaborator. Uh, and so we've had to chip down a lot of barriers. And I think we've tried to bring folks together. Um, we've been in a unique position to do that. Uh, secondly, um, I think that one of our biggest challenges is how we share information. And part of that's a problem because especially when we're dealing with a homeless population is they're a, they're a moving population. They're, um, if I go to try to help John Doe on the street um, and I find him at 6th and Main today, I may not find him at 6th and Main tomorrow. And so when you're trying to get someone in a housing plan or to a hospital or make an appointment just to simply get a driver's license renewal or an ID card, um, I can't find them. And so so the, it makes actual case management, which, you know, I know you know well that it, it's difficult when your population is constantly not in the same place. Um, I think additionally, um, you, you know, we have these barriers to care that just seem enormous and, and they're enormous for me and my organization to try to move across. So you can imagine what it's like for someone dealing um, with a medical condition they're not getting any better with or living with mental illness. And, you know, they're trying to make an appointment and that appointment requires them to schedule through a computer-based patient portal and they have to have an email address and uh, their phone's broken and their power's shut off and they don't have a ride because their car's down and things like that. Um, and so all those care systems don't always work for the patient. And so that's one of the things that become a barrier and they increase the caseload. We just never seem to have an end because we're dealing with these small, uh, what seems to be small challenges, but they're monumental. And I think last but not least, it, it runs into a time issue. Um, 
And it's not for the providers. I think it's a time issue for um, the folks that we're trying to help. And when I talk about those systems of cares that fail, I think it's also a time challenge in that um, housing doesn't happen tomorrow. Um, right. Making a doctor's appointment doesn't happen today. Um, it happens, you know, oh, I can see you in March. Um, or, you know, you're not eligible, so you have to do step A, B, and C to get to, you know, the ultimate goal of seeing a physician or a clinic. And so, although we have all, uh, some alternative care, it, it time just seems to be, um, we lose the our ability to be effective because time gets in the way. And uh, we end up in a situation where we make a lot of promises that often appear to not be fulfilled. And, and I think that that's a big barrier as well. And so... Um, if I had a magic wand, you know, we would all, um, we've had all the money in the world and we'd be fixing problems left and right. But um, I, I will also say on a pause, I, it's not all negative and doom and gloom is working within these barriers forces you to be creative. Uh, it forces you to innovate. It forces you to build relationships that you wouldn't build uh, normally. And I think that's the best part. That's the fun part, I think. And so let, I think the teams that we have, um, you know, that we work with, um, um, you know, we put ourselves together and put our heads together on a problem. And guess what? Somebody gets, you know, a solution. And that's what's great. Yeah, I completely agree. So if you did have a magic wand, what would you do to better serve people and save taxpayers dollars? Uh, I think I would I, I think I would go back and wave it over the, uh, you know, collaboration and relationship piece, um, because if it, you could have all the resources in the world and if uh, agencies aren't working together for a solution, we're never going to make those resources work. Um, and, and so I would I would force people to, you know, dance in the fields with daisies in their hair and, you know, all talk about, you know, <laughs> great things and look at this utopian world. And and part of that is going to have to be that we get along. And so we work together, we get along and, you know, it doesn't matter who you work for. We're all working for the same people and trying to help that population. And so, um, yeah, you're going to, I'm going to wave it across the relationships. So. Okay. So what would you say are your biggest challenges? Um, you know, I would I would agree that there is a confidentiality and and it's it's how do we work through the rules and the protection of people's privacy, um, but yet work to solve the challenges. And I think that I, I think the biggest part of that is some people are willing, some groups and organizations are willing to share information. And I think the ones that don't that create the big barriers are. Uh, they find ways to not work through that and they find ways to not be, they, you know, there are easy, you know, you can get a release of information from someone and, you know, care coordinate all their needs with a lot of providers. And I think some folks forget that, um, you know, we just cannot exist in these silos. And um, especially when we have one person that touches many organizations, every organization then becomes its own silo. and We just can't get in there or we can't break a barrier or we'll make five steps forward and then three back and then one again. And then all of a sudden we're talking now, all of a sudden we're talking eviction. And we were like, we were doing so right. well, you know, we were making, we we're on the path. Right. And, and then all of a sudden they're getting evicted and they're like, great. Now I'm going to create uh, you know, now I've compounded their problems. And um, so um, yeah, I think it's, if, if we knew what, once I talked about that moving population, if I know where John Doe is, I can help them. And I have to have, um, 
from everyone looking for John Doe. I mean, that's part of the benefit that we've had and found within the fire department is, you know, if you see a, a person that's in need, uh, all the fire stations can be looking for someone and they can report back to us. And, you know, because people are all over the city um, and we can look at the calls that, you know, I have individuals that I think are always at one neighborhood and, oh, they pop up and they went to a hospital from a far South Tulsa Avenue address. So um, it, it's, it is sharing that information. I think that would be able to give us that um, more of a business intelligence on what's happening to folks and what, what barriers they're facing in their utilization. Because um, if, you know, they don't come to my hospital, then maybe I've, have I solved their healthcare problem? Well, no, they've just moved on somewhere else. So. So in the city of Tulsa, what are you most excited about right now in our community as far as innovations are concerned? Well, um, and it's similar, but it seems like a deviation from my topic is I am, I've been excited lately about the city's resilient Tulsa strategy. Um, and that, and that really, uh, that really touches it. It doesn't, when you, when you read the document at first, you don't really understand how that touches the fire department and where that comes through is, is is that if we don't come together and build some trust as a community, um, you know, we're not going to solve these issues that we've been talking about. We're not going to share data appropriately. We're not going to build relationships. And what we know from evidence-based practice is that a community that doesn't exchange information, that doesn't have strong, powerful social networks or have any cohesion um, is not prepared for disaster. And if they're not prepared for disaster, um, then the fire department is trying to make rescues and help them restore their home and, and you know, or save them from flooding. And so all of those things connect back to our ability to respond to these shocks in the city and these and in the community. And I think if we embrace a culture of resilience and, and really take it on as a project across the board and, and, and work through things like social cohesion and how we're uh, enjoying public spaces and all of those things will build trust among populations and trust among public safety and provide and law enforcement and fire department and um, business and community, you know, other community agencies. And when we can do that, then I think we're going to be better prepared for what I'm really concerned about is how we manage and respond to disasters appropriately. But um, right. as we've talked about, you know, we've had the conversation about mental illness already, homelessness. Um, if I if I don't begin to build the fabric of the community and um, and build that trust, then we're never going to get anywhere. Um, it, it's just going to be spinning wheels. And so um, I think, you know, my personal, uh, you know, vision has been to become more resilient minded, um, try to bring that into the fire department. Um, but I, I really think that if we as a community embrace that concept of resiliency, uh, it's going to take us really to the the economic and social and um, we'll, we'll begin to solve all those problems that we've talked about. Right. So I'm going to go off topic for a second. Um, so for everybody listening, um, a lot of times people think that the fire department just fights fires. Just go through um, some of the things that the fire department does for the community. Sure. Um, well, we, you know, our number one only business model that we provide is fire protection, right? So, um, no one right. else does that. Um, we do provide emergency medical first response uh, for, uh, along with EMSA, and we do that in a limited manner. So, we go on the most uh, highest 
uh, most severe calls. And so we don't run on every call that EMS is on, even though it kind of looks like it's we're very busy. But uh, we we try to be very intelligent about how we respond our apparatus because we do have multiple missions. Um, you know, in general, we handle the hazardous materials, technical rescue, and and um, your children may see a fire public safety presentation at the fair or in their school. Um, but you know, we there's a lot of other things that we do. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, we do recruiting. Uh, we have we have to consider our workforce and we have to consider, you know, what the future looks like for the fire department. We're hiring younger people now. So we've lowered our minimum age to 18. Well, where do we find folks that are qualified and ready to go to work for the fire department and that you would allow in your home and or you would hand your baby to if there was an emergency? Um, so we train and we educate and recruit folks. Um, you know, additionally, within the EMS branch, the Emergency Medical Services Office, um, we do healthcare related activities. So we monitor the quality of the healthcare delivered by the firefighters in the field. Uh, we provide them with education with the current and most up to date uh, procedures and processes uh, from science and medicine. And um, we also um, we have to take care of a lot of equipment that's quite expensive um, to deliver healthcare. Um, but last but not least, we have two other programs that are important to know about, which we talked about, mentioned a little bit which is CARES, which is Community Assistance Referrals and Education Services. And CARES program was started a few years back to try to address these high utilizers of healthcare. We know that there's a population that have, um, you know, either a functional limitation, which would be they require a walker or a wheelchair or a cane or something like that. And then they also have these long existing healthcare conditions that are very difficult to manage. So CARES, we see these people, sometimes they're frequent callers and sometimes they, um, once again, we're in a situation where um, we want to offer the best help for them, but they're, they're helping healthcare never seems to improve. And so what CARES tries to do is connect that individual with the right resources. It's And it's simply a connection. Um, we found that um, really we function better within what we call the social determinants of health. That's housing and education and um, good healthcare management. And uh, even if it requires some financial management and that's, you're like, why would the fire department be concerned about someone's finances? Well, if you're not getting your rent paid and you're a high healthcare utilizer and you're not housed, then I can't get medicine to you or get a get a shuttle van to you to get to a doctor's appointment. So all of these things impact someone's health and wellness. And then we have the community response team, which is a partnership between Mental Health Association, uh, Family and Children's Services, and Tulsa Police Department. And that's a, um, a, a team of, that is 911 driven that goes out and de-escalates crisis calls that are coming into the police department. And they work very closely um, with 911 dispatch and the COPES team to try to make sure that we get the right response to the right person at the right time time and that folks are not, um, you know, uh, they're able, we're able to deal with them and, and we, it saves public safety responses. And what's great about that is a lot of folks can stay uh, sheltered at home. I mean, they don't have to go to the hospital or they don't end up in a, in a jail situation because their mental illness caused them to commit a crime um, or, you know, they can be treated at a, a, a crisis center. So uh, long story short, those are some of the pro things that we do. I mean, it's more than, like you said, just fighting fires and all, all of that. That comes back to uh, really how do we support our operations to ensure that we're there when you need us, whether it's a medical emergency or a house fire. And so when we do that, um, you know, we're able to be better efficient with what I think people we, you know, they would not like us spending tax dollars frivolously and um, they want us to be most efficient in use of our time. So when we first met, you told me you, you were going to send me articles 
First of all, I didn't really believe the amount of articles you were going to send me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have, I read constantly and I was like, man, this guy reads way more than I do. So of the, you're constantly reading and trying to innovate. Um, what innovations in Oklahoma or beyond are on the horizon um, that you, you think um, would make a difference in the future? Well, um, I think there's a couple of things that are standing out to me right now. It's, it's, um, this, I'm, I've always been a, you know, fan of trying to kind of watch all these different business sectors. And so, yeah, when you see articles, you kind of, you know, a lot of the innovation comes from a lot of different places. Um, one of the things that I've been kind of intrigued with is this transitional care model that has been adopted by some hospital systems, um, mainly on the East Coast and kind of on the West Coast when they've realized that, you know, if you're having a homeless individual that needs to be um, not in a hospital bed, um, but doesn't need to be on the street or in a shelter while they wait on housing. Um, and so, uh, some hospitals have taken to buying apartment buildings uh, close to the hospital so they can provide a step-down care until the individual is well enough to, um, you know, go back out and, you know, try to work through those challenges of life. And, and really, that gets them in touch with uh, case management and gets them on a housing list. And people know, once again, they know where they're at. You know, there's they're getting healing and they're getting health care, but yet the cost is, is, is much more effective than um, a hospital stay. Um, and they're able to recover better than, unfortunately, living on the street or or uh, in an environment that's not hospital hospitable to, in you know, preventing infection or relapse. Um, so I kind of like that. Um, secondly, um, I, I just watch what other fire departments and agencies are doing across the country that are trying to are faced with the challenge of homelessness. Um, if you look at how um, the Los Angeles Fire Department responds to um, their worst homeless area, and they take it with a sense of pride. Um, they're, they handle the situation and they really have embraced that population. Um, we, we look, I mean, that's a population that, you know, that we experience fires in homeless camps. Um, we have people who are in shelters that are not fit for occupancy that burn because they're trying to stay warm. Um, we've had fatalities and people trying to stay warm in the winter. It, it's a, there's a fire problem associated with that well as well. And I, um, I take that on as how all fire services and in, in, in working through this. Um, and so that's kind of one I'm looking at. And then last but not least, it's uh, I'm fascinated with this ability to kind of predict and understand using uh, data that we have about um, the success of someone in a program, much like CARES, that, you know, how do we how do we use some information and to uh, really direct their care in the most effective manner and that makes them the most successful. And I think doing a data dive into what we know um, on our, or our responses and what we know of their needs, I think we can kind of predict based on our information about, well, you know, their best suited partner in this is this organization or we need to watch out for this or they're at risk for that. And I don't think we're there yet, but I think um, what I would consider some artificial intelligence some modeling about um, what does a patient, a high need patient for a fire department look like. And so, um, and so we can get ahead of that and we can start making those changes that are required. So those are kind of the, 
you know, fire department next steps in the WorX world. I'm not telling you that I'm going to get those done, but those are the things I'm looking at. So, I mean, I like all of those ideas. Um, and I don't read any, I don't read any of those articles. I just send them to you and then you like, give me the summaries, right? <laughs> oh, okay. When I no, respond yes, back. Right. No, I do. Yeah. I do look through them. I, I, I like them. I probably do send more stuff than I need to, but. So. Would you say that social isolation like contributes to increased mental illness or not? I don't want to say increased mental illness, increased calls or, you know, could cause a person to, I don't know how to word this. Does social isolation impact a person's health and well-being? Yes. Does social isolation, yes. <laughs> what you just said, does social isolation impact a person's health and well-being? Yeah, it, so that's either a softball that you just threw because you know I'll swing at that one. Um, I um, yes, uh, I'm a hundred percent believer. It goes back to my interest in resilient Tulsa and social cohesion and the networks we form as with our neighbors. And um, you know, I'm a firm believer that we are seeing so many more people that live by themselves as their population age. They are struggle. They they may do very well on their own uh, until a certain point, and then they begin to fall. And household falls contribute to long term hospital stays if we don't get ahead of those. Or um, they'll live without heat. Um, they'll live without electricity. And you know they. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I, I believe that we are seeing an emergence of social isolation. We are separated as um, I think we live in this virtual connection. Um, the virtual right. connection is not the um, that's not the solution we need. It's, you, it's it doesn't give you that human contact. Um, uh, I, I've. You know, I've done some extensive kind of once again reading on this topic. And um, I think that, you know, if we just have people being present with other people, um, you know, we know that 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 clearly has implications to their well-being. And so for me, I think that one of my and I, you and I have talked about this a lot is how do we how do we take an individual who is homeless and say, here's your new home. And then we shut the door and, well, got them housed. And then there's a high five on the porch and we, um, you know, we go celebrate one more person housed. It becomes a statistic. And then three weeks later, you see them back on the street or they're not successful with housing. And I think the problem is we're not building enough of a community around that person. And they had their community. Their community was the other homeless folks they're around. That was that's right. their social connection. That's their that's their exchange of social capital. That's their information source. That's their, uh, man, you got to be at this place by 930 to get a shower and a meal. And you've got to be at this place on Tuesdays because they got coffee, you know, at two. So that's their world. And when we take someone out of that, what are we doing to them? And we know that when are we marginalizing them on the side of a population? Man, I'm, this has gone deep. What did you ask that question for? Uh, so, uh, <laughs> our, you know, and we we know it's, it goes back to some of our tribal origins that if we take a if you're not comfortable eating with another tribe, then you're going to go back to your other environment. And so uh, for me, I see this I, I see this in reality. I've seen, you know, homeless folks that we have uh, interacted with that that struggle with being alone. I see the elderly that struggle with being alone and then ultimately, um, you know, they uh 
you know, they pass away and, you know, alone. And so, um, and once again, uh, I think I see it a lot in some of our younger folks and folks that are not elderly that are maybe that's that pre-existing, they're living with a mental illness and now they're isolated. I mean, you know, now we're really compounding their challenges. And so once again, it's connecting as a community, it's reaching out to folks, it's checking on each other. And until we, until we get that reestablished, we're going to, we're really going to face this as a continuing problem. Right. So my question is, actually, it's not even a question. We're just in this conversation. So I go to bed at night thinking about this because like, we're definitely like, we're in like a technological type community where we're, you know, social media, all that good stuff. Um, that's how we connect to people. But then you have this other subsector, which is people experiencing homelessness, the elderly, like they're very much still in like almost like a 1950s type community. Um, how do you like merge those two together? Cause I literally go to sleep every single night going, how do we, how do we find that connectedness? Well, I think, you know, if you look at some of the ways that, um, you know, Ruby Payne does a great job, bridges out of poverty, and you talk about the things that people just have to break out of that. They have to have that internal intrinsic drive to leave that situation. Uh, do we have that? No, it's more comfortable. I'm comfortable with the tribe, right? These are my people. Um, and so, uh, no amount of outreach is going to pull me out of there until there's a moment. Um, and I think a lot of that is being present and being there and knowing Jessica and knowing the outreach team and knowing, Hey, I can talk to this firefighter if I need to, today's my day. Um, But the other part of that is we have to facilitate a transition from tribe one to tribe two, and we have to make it safe. They have to want to take and break bread with another group of people that live in a communal environment. And that is how it's I think that's the you know, or, you know, you know, um, you know, facilitate the development of an uh, slowly. I think we have to work on that social connected part before we even give them a key to a new place. I mean, it's they've got to begin to have because that's their support system. And we, when we can change their support structure and they feel safe um, at combined or collective and collaborative events, or um, they feel safe at a new place, then they're going to be more likely to stay there and build a new life there because they trust the individuals they're with. Um, We talk to homeless folks, both you and I all the time that say, oh, I'm not going to this place because I don't, I'm scared of that place. Um, I don't like those people. Um, And so uh, it's a big barrier, but I think that that social cohesion and it's a harder thing to break once you find a group of people that you trust and work with, and then that, you know, they can meet your, your needs every day. We need to find you some other way to go to bed at night. I literally go to bed. I'm like, how do we get people to come out of their houses and interact with the community? So tell me about community staffing. Well, uh, for me, community staffing, you know, all CARES, CRT, community staffing, and is really comes out of the Colorado Springs CARES program and the model out of Colorado Springs Fire Department that we visited in in uh, 2016 um, with a group of community members, many of which we'd never met till we got on the plane, and that I have developed some incredible friendships with since. Um, that we have really brought that model back to Tulsa. Um, and uh, so community staffing is quite interesting because, you know, it 
for folks that don't know, uh, we really had this challenge of talking to each other. Um, so the goal was how do we take um, the most challenging individuals that we have, whether they were homeless or just chronically ill and put our heads together to solve the issues or surrounding them. So the only way to do that is to really meet with the folks that are directly involved in their care. And so we get releases of information uh, from them so we can protect their privacy. And we're only dealing with uh, de-identified information um, in the meetings. Um, but we bring all the situations and the qualities around the individual uh, more so than the personality. That's So, um, for example, if you have someone who's visiting the hospital a lot and, uh, you know, they may end up at one hospital today and then tomorrow they're at another hospital. But until until we all start talking about how many times they've interacted with public safety or uh, with the hospitals, no one knows. Uh, they're only, once again, siloed in their operations and they're taking care of the folks and moving on to the next patient. And so then hospital, you know, homeless outreach may not be involved. Uh, and then, yep, find out they're homeless. Did you not know? Oh, wait, we didn't know they were homeless. So uh, point being is that uh, until we all start talking about these folks that are, are really driving the healthcare in Tulsa, um, you know, we will, you know, we're not going to end up being a, a long-term solution for them. Uh, my personal mission has kind of been to solve a problem called bounce, this bounce back. Um, when a patient is discharged from a hospital that's homeless and they go to the shelter and uh, unfortunately the shelter can't you know, they have to lay on a mat on the floor, but yet their medical condition precludes them from doing that. Or they are, um, uh, you know, taking a medication that the shelter can't accept. Um, and so uh, we did a great project with uh, Dr. Beeman uh, and other on the mental health side on uh, Project Blue Streets, which was trying to speed this concept of medical clearance and on, on behavioral health patients that interact with law enforcement in the hospitals and try to smooth that process. And so uh, I'm kind of challenged the group for 2020 to let's work on something similar for the shelter transition so that because the situation that we run into on the fire department is that if that medical patient may get there by taxi, but if they end up in a situation where they're not quite you know, healed or they have another crisis, it generates another 911 call, which ultimately could have been, ultimately it could have been prevented. And so with a little bit of handoff and communication, and I'm a firm believer in the warm handoff process and having a conversation with someone about who they're receiving and being ready for them. And it, once again, it really helps that, I mean, if you're homeless and you're coming out of a hospital and you're sick, um, and you're going from a private room or a semi-private room with a meal and to a mat because of the shelter is crowded. I mean, that's a large transition to your health and well-being. And so, you know, once again, we're just we've we've ultimately have to make the decision that we're going to treat these folks um, and treat their healthcare conditions and move them through the process and the systems that make them well. And if we don't continue to do that, then uh, there it's going to continue to impact fire department, law enforcement, EMSA, health care, uh, homeless outreach, and, and this, the cycle just continues. And that's not how we treat people. 
I mean, that goes back to innovation, like the hospitals buying apartments or hotels, because finding someone a place to live is a huge barrier when you have somebody experiencing homelessness. Then there's being discharged, and the only place to discharge them is either to the street or the shelter, and they can't go to the shelter for all those reasons you said. We need some place, like a middle ground, where the person can kind of catch their breath. That would be amazing. And, and if it was something new, once again, I borrowed this. This is not some Michael Baker idea, you know? Right. And so no. if it was something new, I was kind of, I'd be like, oh, that sounds risky. But people are, you know, their hospital systems are investing in that across the nation. And I think there is some interest locally, um, and which is, a, which is uh, you know, very exciting. Uh, but um, once again, I mean, it's... I, in my reading and the research I pull down is what excites me about those things is that, hey, this it's not the content. It's that I know within our community of providers that we have the capacity to do it. And I think that's the exciting part is that I wouldn't I wouldn't be interested in an article. It's like, you know, it says, oh, well, we have to launch a rocket. That's a different thing. But you know what? We've got, hey, we could do that. You know, let me get some. And and I have been blessed by being able to have audience with some folks that actually read some emails that I might send out that says, hey, look, you know, someone's doing this great idea. What what could we do? And it doesn't have to be perfect, but what can we do as a variation of this? And that's what that's what makes the change. I mean, in 2016, when Mental Health Association and Mike Bro said, hey, do you guys want to go to Colorado Springs? There's something going on up there. I We weren't where we are today. Um, you know, we've got partnerships with the University of Oklahoma's uh, School of Social Work. We have social work students that come around. We have ORU social work students that come around. Um, and ultimately, we're impacting the public safety uh, of the city. And those, most importantly, those folks that we take care of. I just think it's interesting because there's like the integrated model in the medical field, but we're lacking that in our critical parts of our community. Because if you think about it, many services overlap each other. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, and I, I, for me, I don't, that much like for you, I don't understand why, you know, it's like everyone sees, yeah. everyone has a cost. There's a cost associated with every time you touch that person. Um, you would think that there'd be a vested interest in making that cost improve. But once again, I'm, I'm sure standby for emails. Right. Um, and so right. Um, the point is, is that um, I'm trying to and I always tell my wife, I was like, please do not try to apply logic to an illogical situation. And I and when I speak about the fire department or something, you know, and it's uh, but she does, she looks at me like I know. And so um, uh, it, it seems to make sense. Um, and I think that's but, you know, on the other hand, let me just turn a little bit and not be all gloom and doom and say that, you know, we through relationships and the ones that we do have and the working partnerships that we do have, we're having a conversation today. I mean, if I didn't have a relationship with the association, I would not be sitting here talking to you today. Uh, additionally, um, we have had some patients that we have made some ex tremendous strides in their wellness and well-being to the point where their 9-1-1 utilization is down uh, from 
22 times a month to five times a month. I mean, that's a massive improvement. Um, you know, things, good things happen. Community staffing, people show up for the meetings. That's unheard of. Um you know, uh, having, a, you know, being invited to the table to discuss housing, uh, that's, uh, you know, people would say, why are the fire department there? Well, we protect property. That's our job. That's our primary mission. Um, and when we have folks that burn houses um, because they're unhoused and unsheltered and they're trying to survive the winter's cold, um, you know, I don't, I want to be able to rescue them and if they're in danger. And, and so uh, ultimately, um, you know, those, there's some great things that have happened. It's not all bad. I, I think what I have to appreciate is that it takes time and it, takes a while to get things in motion and you have to respect that. And sometimes I'm impatient because it just doesn't seem, seems like we should be able to do that today. Right. But, um, right. It, no, that's not how it goes. Well, I wish it went that way. Cause I'm pretty instant gratification. I'm like, let's do it now and today. Um, okay. So the next portion is like some personal questions. What are other things you do for like mental health, wellness, self-care? You know, uh, thanks for bringing that up, Jessica, because I I probably not near what I need to be doing. Um, So I I think my number one, you know, we have been we foster through Oklahoma Westie Rescue. We foster Westies and all sorts of odd strange variations of a Westie or a Scotty. And I think having my dogs and, and being able to take care of a foster dog and things like that um, in our home is really great. And uh, it's very rewarding. Um, and so, um, you know, I love, I love home projects, working outside. Um, I, I spent some time as a, oh, a part of a television crew on a TV gardening show. Um, and that was, I learned a lot about planting trees and flowers and bushes and things. And so I like that kind of stuff and that really helps me. So this is not my best time of year for, uh, self-care. So, um, but spring and summer and fall are great. So, so we're running low on time as is tradition with the mental health download. We ask the guests to share a few parting words and then close us out by telling the audience, go do good things. First off, um, you know, what a great experience. Um, I think everyone can probably tell that, you know, if you put you and I in a room together and you give us a t- couple of topics, uh, the day goes by quickly and we, we can talk about those all day. But, um, you know, the number one thing is that um, if we trust each other and we begin to work on our relationships with each other, not only good things happen, but incredible things happen. So, you know, my charge to everyone in the community, uh, knock on your neighbor's door, volunteer somewhere, you know, renew your commitments to support and ultimately go do good things. Was this thing supposed to be recording? No.